Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Ryan Bosser. I'm the Connections Director here at the church. Uh, as 2018 came to a close, Lance Morrow, who uh, is a senior fellow at the Ethics and Publicly, uh, Public Policy Center, he, he wrote an intriguing opinion article about this disturbing trend of increased outrage in America and in, in about how just in less than a decade at this, at this time, uh, you know, our country is, is more divided on more issues than ever before. And he posed this question that at this point in society, who isn't entitled to be outraged? No doubt, you've noticed this shift within the cultural landscape that maybe he was referring to. Let me just recap, I think, a few of the most notable social movements that Morrow had in mind when he wrote this article. Uh, in 2011, Occupy Wall Street uh, protested wealth and income gap in America, uh, creating division between uh, the different socioeconomic classes. In 2013, uh, three African-American women founded Black Lives Matter in response to the death of Trayvon Martin. And now this sparked uh, some of the most heated racial tensions that uh, we've seen since the civil rights era. In 2015, the former uh, Bruce Jenner formally introduced the world to Caitlyn Jenner uh, on the cover of Vanity Fair magazine, which uh, sparked new debates about gender identity. And it was actually that same year that the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage at the federal level. Uh, in 2016, a political division reached new heights. Uh, we, we, we were just seeing our, our first uh, African-American president in our history leave office, uh, only then to be followed by uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, who ran as a, a self-proclaimed socialist Democrat, which prompted, prompted this, this increase to uh, what we call progressive liberalism. Uh, we saw the, the first woman uh, run for president. And then all of this culminated with a victory for uh, Donald Trump, who was, who was actually a political outsider, uh, uh, but now who is arguably one of the most polarizing figures in America. Uh, and at the same time, his presidency fueled extreme conservatism. Now, 2017 kicked off with the Me Too movement challenging uh, sexual harassment and sexual violence, especially in the workplace. Uh, the marquee moment for uh, Me Too was a four million person march spread across multiple cities, which is actually uh, the largest protest that we've ever actually had in history. And then finally, in 2018, we had a March for Lives, which uh, advocated for gun control legislation in, in, in response to this disturbing trend of increased mass shootings that we were seeing. 
Now, what was one thing at least that was that was notable about uh, March for Lives was uh, this was one of the very first times that corporate America took a noticeable stance in one direction or another on social matters, something that we would see a lot more so in years to come. So by the time that Morrow wrote this article, there was no shortage of things to be outraged about in America. Uh, those in favor of, of some of these movements were outraged. Uh, and, and those who uh, were opposed to uh, maybe some of these movements in their messages, they were equally outraged as well. And so, and so it was to that end that Morrow made this point. When everyone is outraged, then real grievances lose their meaning. And the endless indulgence of outrage becomes objectively immoral. Now, Morrow wasn't saying that, that each side of these issues were, were meritless. He was questioning the lasting impact of this seemingly never-ending stream of something to be outraged. His point was simply that, that when everyone seemed to be outraged about something, we don't actually make any progress. In other words, regardless of uh, which side of, of the argument that, that you might lean about one of these issues or, or, or maybe multiple of these issues, the collective result has been counterproductive for human flourishing. So then, what are we supposed to do with our outrage? Because if left unchecked, your outrage, my outrage, uh, and the collective outrage of others becomes toxic. And we're in the series uh, in the Gospel of Luke um, uh, called Labels um, that, that we've been studying over, over the last number of weeks. And the purpose of this series is to help you see that the gospel calls us to a life that's above labels. And today's label is called Outrage. And I think that this is one of the, uh, you know, one of the most important, uh, you know, conversations for us to have right now, uh, because you know we're in a we're in a period of time where where tensions are so high in America, uh, even higher in in 2018 when that article was written. It, tribal lines have have grown deeper and wider, uh, while compromise has been uh, has been something that you know is now taboo, and the result has has become this kind of us versus them pseudo-reality uh, that, that tears apart at the very fabric that used to bind us together. And so we have truly become uh, a melting pot that is now boiling over. So it might, it might come as a surprise to you that, that even Jesus experienced outrage. And, and yet, despite his outrage, all throughout Scripture affirms the reality that Jesus never sinned. So here's my outline today. It's, it's pretty simple. What is Christian outrage and its response? And what is worldly outrage and its response? I want to show you how, how Jesus can help transform the manner in which we process outrage. And more importantly, how, how this can shape the way that we relate to other people and in the systems that, that we disagree with most, while at the same time keeping our dignity, 
uh, respecting others that, that maybe we disagree with and in honoring our heavenly father along the way. So go ahead and grab your Bibles, open them up to uh, Luke chapter 19. We're going to start off in verse 45, and here's what it says. And he, Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching in the, daily, in the temple daily. Uh, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. So Jesus has just entered uh, the, the uh, entered Jerusalem for Passover. Now remember, at the end of the week, uh, this would culminate in uh, in Jesus being uh, falsely accused, uh, beaten, and then hung on a cross to die in between uh, two uh, criminals. Uh, but his first order of business when he arrived into the city was to go to the temple. Now, let me show you an artistic uh, rendering of, of what that temple looked like. Uh, the, the tall structure uh, that you see, uh, that's what was called the sanctuary. Now, only the high priest could enter the sanctuary because it contained this inner room that was called the Holy of Holies. Uh, and the Holy of Holies housed the Ark of the Covenant, which uh, represented uh, God's presence with the people of Israel. Uh, a little bit in front of uh, the temple, uh, kind of to the, to the left uh, of that picture outside the sanctuary was what was called the court of the priests. Uh, and now only uh, Jewish priests were allowed to enter into this area. Uh, in front of that, kind of more towards the left of that picture, uh, you see what was called uh, the court of the men of Israel. Now only uh, Jewish males were allowed to enter into uh, this area. Uh, next, in kind of the, the first open space that you see that is kind of near all the walled up structures, that was what was called the Court of Israel. Uh, all Jews could enter that area, including women. And then finally, uh, the last uh, kind of big open area that you see there, uh, that was what was called the Court of the Gentiles. Now, this was for uh, foreigners uh, or non-Jewish proselytes who had converted to Judaism. Now, two things were happening uh, in particular in that court of Gentiles, which corresponded to the Jewish Passover that, uh, that really it's important for us to, to have a context of it um, to understand this uh, story that's going on. First, in Exodus chapter 30, uh, verse 11 through 16 required every Jewish male over the age of 20 to pay a half shekel temple tax, which uh, went to its upkeep and its maintenance. But the Jewish temple would only accept a, a Tyrian shekel. So there were these money changers to uh, exchange any foreign currency to this Tyrian shekel. Originally, money changers were allowed to tar charge interest for these services. It was called a, a koban, uh, and it was typically in the neighborhood of about four to eight percent. But but this this actually wasn't strictly enforced. And so what happened was, uh, money changers were pretty much able to determine uh, whatever exchange rate uh, or interest that they wanted to, and oftentimes charging uh, interest all the way up to in the neighborhood of fifty percent. So why was 
Was this injustice allowed to continue? Well, it's because uh, the money changers would uh, take some of this extra interest and they would kind of pay it under the table to uh, the priests and, and back to the temple. It was, a, it was a wildly corrupt system. Second thing going on, uh, from uh, Leviticus chapter 17, it required uh, a sacrificial offering at Passover as payment for sin. And now typically this was uh, a sheep or a goat, um, but, but, but if you were poor, uh, you were allowed to, to offer a dove. Now, but, well, but regardless of the, of the animal, um, it, it, the animal had to be clean, meaning it had to be without blemish or it wouldn't be acceptable to God as a sacrifice. And so there were these uh, examiners of, of unapproved animals set up all throughout the court of the Gentiles. And, and what they would do is they'd be like, oh, you know, hey, like I, I see a spot right there uh, on your animal. So, so that's a no-go. That's, uh, that's not going to work. But, but good news, don't worry. I've got some, uh, some perfectly good animals over here in the temple that you could go ahead uh, and buy and you can use those uh, for a sacrifice instead. Uh, now, a few, a few Jewish historians have recorded that the price for, for these animals that, uh, that, were, that were purchased inside the temple oftentimes could cost upwards of 18 times more than the animals that, uh, that they could get outside of the temple. So let's review what, now what we have going on so far. We have uh, basically like, like a racist and sexist system led by uh, corrupt leaders at the top that perpetuated economic oppression. So, I mean, just tell me, Ryan, like which of these injustices outraged Jesus the most? And the answer is none of them. Look again at verse 45 and 46. And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus was outraged that, that the temple, the, the place where the people went to worship God was basically just a marketplace. It was loud, it was chaotic, but most of all, it was, it was distracting. It, there, there were a bunch of people running around doing a bunch of things that, that amounted to not doing the, the very one thing that they were actually supposed to do at the temple, and that was to worship God. And, and that was so that, so that ultimately uh, the people could uh, connect personally to God. So now, what is it that caused Jesus' outrage? It's when people were denied access to God. And this helps us understand a little bit about what Christian outrage really means. Christian outrage is about love. I think it's even more important to, to frame Jesus cleansing the temple in the context of what happened uh, immediately before uh, he actually entered into the city. Flip back to verse 41. Here's what it says. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Before Jesus was outraged, he was heartbroken. 
Jesus was heartbroken because the Jewish nation, the, uh, the very people that God had chosen to be his own, failed to acknowledge that, that Jesus was actually God in, in human flesh and, and failed to, to follow him. And, and that if only, they would, if only they would do that, then, then it would satisfy their souls and provide lasting peace. And yet, uh, despite all of the injustices that, that were going on culturally and socially at the time and what, and what Jesus saw in that moment, what outraged Jesus the most was that people couldn't access God in that environment. And notice, G- Jesus, he didn't get all liberal here. He didn't say, you know, these, these Gentiles, you know, they deserve better treatment. You guys, you guys are a bunch of racists. Or, or why, don't you, why don't you let women get into, you know, one of these other courts? You guys, you guys are a bunch of uh, sexists. Or, or, you know, you know we, need to, we need to get rid of uh, this rigged marketplace, uh, you know, that, that, that only benefits a bunch of rich guys. But Jesus, <laughs> Jesus didn't get uh, all conservative here either. He didn't say, you know, let's make this marketplace into what capitalism is, is really supposed to be. Or, you know, we just, need to, we just need to get this country back to, you know, its good old Judeo roots that, that our founding fathers had in mind when, when they wrote the, the old, um, you know, uh, Torah constitution. Here's why. Because Jesus knew that, that while a just society and in a culture that, that values uh, dignity and respect for others matter, it's not actually what matters most. What matters most is, is individuals being connected to God personally and, and, and being transformed personally by God and then, and then working out that transformed life while being relationally connected to others. So what did Jesus do with, with his outrage? Look now at verse 47. And he was teaching daily in the temple. And that means that the Christian response seeks to restore. You know, Jesus didn't, he, he didn't post a, a scathing rebuttal against the Jewish leaders on Facebook. And he didn't organize the disciples to, to start an Occupy uh, the Temple movement. He didn't gather relig- you know, the religious leaders to say and say, hey, you know, we just need to, we just need to elect a, a political outsider that you know, maybe could come in and clean out this swamp. He stayed. He stayed in the temple teaching. He stayed in the temple building relationships with people. And he did that each day. And he even did that each day while knowing that, uh, that by the end of the week, uh, his own fate was sealed. And, and, and truly, from, from at least a, a worldly standpoint, it was going to end in tragedy. And that's pretty incredible if you think about it. But, you know, that's what love does. It stays. It stays because the goal isn't to win the argument. It's to restore the relationship. It tries to connect rather than to cancel. 
It tries to build up rather than tear down. It's more concerned with being right next to someone than it is with just being right. This is what Christian outrage is all about. On the one hand, I think, it, I think it operates from a place of humility that says, you know, before I personally was lost in my sin, helpless to get myself out uh, because, because everything that I tried to pursue left me feeling in, empty on the inside. But the grace of God rescued me and redeemed me. So when somebody disagrees with me and and my blood, you know, maybe starts to boil a little bit, what I see most of all are people made in the image of God stuck in that same place that I was at one point. And and, and that, that breaks my heart. And on the other hand, I think Christian outrage operates from this place of, of boldness, a boldness that comes from a kind of inner confidence meaning I'm confident in who Christ says I am. I am already loved. I am already a son or a daughter of the most high king. So it's okay if if you don't agree with my values and beliefs because, because that's not where I get my acceptance from. I'm confident, I'm secure. And because I care about you really at the, at the deepest soul level, I wanna stay with you and I wanna see your heart transformed much more than just try to get you to agree with me. This type of outrage, outrage for people rather than outrage because of people is is not typically how the world operates. Here's how it operates. Worldly outrage is about fear. It says the chief priests and the scribes and the principles of men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. You know, at, at its core, fear is this uh, you know, strong emotional response to um, you know, either the anticipation or the awareness of danger. And the chief priests and the scribes and the, and the principal leaders of men, uh, they, they viewed Jesus as dangerous. It, Jesus threatened their position of authority. Jesus threatened their, their power over, uh, or his power over the Jewish people. Verse 48 said that the people were hanging on Jesus's words. That means that, that Jesus's words had power. Well, I'll tell you, Jesus' words had power because he, in fact, was uh, the word of God himself. And what the, the, the religious leaders feared most was, was losing that power. And when you think about maybe what outrages you the most, are any of them actually driven by fear? You know, like maybe you're afraid of of losing some of your freedoms. 
You know, like your, your, your company is, is pushing uh, some kind of agenda that, that maybe you don't agree with. And, uh, and if you feel, you know, if you feel like you have to do these, you know, sensitivity training, uh, you know, and you have to, you know, change your email signature line and, and maybe, uh, you know, change your name tag and you're just, you're just fed up with that. Maybe, maybe you're just like ready to, you know, call it a day and just, you know, quit that company altogether. Or maybe you're afraid of, of what your kids are being exposed to at school. You know, the, the, the edgy books that, uh, that are in the library. Uh, you know, social clubs that, that are flying, you know, rainbow banners. And being influenced by, uh, by other kids that, uh, that maybe you think are weird or, uh, you know, because they don't, they don't believe in the same things that, that your family, you and your family believes in. Or maybe it's just even, even the fact that uh, you're concerned about your kids hearing about some really hard topics that you don't feel are all that age appropriate for that time. Listen, there's no shortage of, of things out there driving our fear. I wonder if this is why the Bible mentions the phrase fear not uh, 365 times. Because God knows our, our capacity to, to fear is practically endless. You know, because if you think about it, I mean, that's almost like one fear not for, for every day of the year. It's, and so for some of you, maybe, maybe even learning a few of those fear nots would, would be a helpful step for you to take. But now if fear exists, one of two things is going to happen. We'll either fight or we'll flight. Neither of which is helpful, but, but it, seems like, it seems like the common response with, within our culture right now, um, you know, definitely leans more towards the fight response. I think we can all agree on that. Uh, so maybe uh, what Yoda, if you remember this, Yoda said to Anakin Skywalker, makes sense. He says, fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. I mean, you remember that scene? Now, you know, Yoda was like, you know, don't go there, young Skywalker. I mean, that's the path of the, to the dark side. That's, that's how you're going to end up to be, you know, Darth Vader there, bro. The religious leaders were outraged because they were afraid of losing power. And the response, the response helps us understand the way the world responds to outrage. The worldly response seeks to destroy. Listen to this. The chief priests and scribes and the principles of men of the people were seeking to destroy him. How did the religious leaders respond to the fact that Jesus was more popular with the people? They sought to destroy him. And if you think about it, but by the end of the Passover week, that's exactly what they did. They destroyed him. I mean, at least for three days until, until Jesus resurrected himself. When you're afraid, you're either going to run away from it or you're going to fight against it. And whenever you decide to fight, then the goal of fighting is to win and to eliminate the threat. And that means we call out, we cancel, Maybe we boycott and we humiliate and we start to vilify. 
We create this culture of us versus them. So what are we supposed to do with all this? Let me, let me give you three ways that, that I think we can apply this. The first one is to be really critical about your outrage. I think you need to ask yourself, you know, what, what upsets you most and why is that? Why do you feel that way? Because what upset Jesus most was when people couldn't access God. You know, it's interesting. He was even upset with his own disciples at one point uh, when, when, they were, when they were in a big crowd of people and, and there were some children uh, coming up uh, trying to, to meet with Jesus and his disciples were, you know, they were kind of shooing them away. Uh, and Jesus, it says, became uh, indignant uh, and, and yelled at his disciples and said, hey, don't, you know, don't hinder these kids from coming to me. Don't hinder their access to God. If your outrage isn't centered on loving people well and, and caring about their soul, then it's really not much different from, from the rest of the world, if you think about it. I think it's time to, to get really honest about why you feel so angry about these things you're most outraged about. Because if you don't seek restoration, if the goal isn't restoration, then you're only going to be left with a desire to destroy. The second one is this. It's to realize not everything is a threat. You know, when I was in Iraq, I mean, it, it, it seemed like everything around us uh, was a threat. So, um, so we were constantly going through this uh, you know, mental exercise of, you know, is this situation, is it, uh, is it a threat or uh, is it dangerous? Um, you know, we would meet someone and we were, you know, we we're constantly asking, you know, is this person safe uh, or are they dangerous? And, and, and I felt like it was, it was really hard to turn that off when, uh, when I came back. But I feel like a lot of us approach life like that. You know, is, is, this, is this situation safe or is it dangerous? Is this, is this person, are they safe or are they dangerous? But, you know, but it might be helpful to know that, that Jesus' last words before he left planet Earth were, I will be with you always. In other words, Jesus says, because I am with you always, you don't have to be afraid. In other words, fear not. Why? Jesus says, because I am actually with you always. So that means you don't have to go through life, you know, playing this constant game of, uh, is, this, is this safe or is this a threat? I think the Apostle Paul was a great example of, of what we're talking about here. You know, he was like, you know, you don't have to agree with me, but I'm still going to preach Christ crucified because that's what changed my life. And, and that's what I think can change your life. Now, you know, I mean, you want to stone me, you want to beat me, you want to lock me up, you know, well, okay, I, I count as a joy because that means I get to share in the same suffering as Jesus. He's like, well, I mean, you want to kill me? Oh, okay, I mean, great. You know, to live is Christ, but to die is gain because that means that I'm going to be, you know, reunited with Jesus in heaven. I mean, it was like, it was like nothing you could do could phase that guy. 
that should give us confidence, that should make us anti-fragile. But if I'm being honest, it seems like Jesus followers are some of the most fragile and sensitive people of all. I mean, we're so easily offended, it's unbelievable. You, you want to know an example of how I know that to be true? It's because I see what some of you post on your social media. And if I can summarize what I'm talking about here, I'll just tell you, there, there is zero love in it. And there is zero concern for the people that you're talking to. There's just defensiveness and insecurity. And there's just this desire to be right and win the argument. I mean, think about it even. At what point did we start expecting people who don't know Jesus to act like they actually do? I mean, it's nonsense. The third one, the last one is this. Ask yourself if you're really willing to stick around. What I appreciate most about, uh, about this text is the fact that Jesus stayed in the temple and he taught the people. It, Jesus didn't teach the people how to, how to be better Jews or how to be better leaders. He, he taught them about God and, and, about, and about being saved through grace and having a relationship personally with God. Because Jesus knew that, that people who are transformed by the gospel are the ones who actually transform the world. It's not through better laws or the right kind of government or, or wiser leadership, even though those are all good things. It's, it's actually the power of the Holy Spirit working in each person, transforming lives, and then living out those lives in the context of community together. Listen, I'll tell you, you're not going to change the national conversation on something like gender identity. So instead of arguing about, about having to use pronouns, why don't you spend your time teaching our young boys how to be godly men or, or teaching our, our girls how to be godly women? Listen, uh, you know, avoiding people who are different from you, telling, you know, telling your kids to, to stay away from you know, little, Sim, little, little, little Sally or, or little Timmy or whatever because, uh, because they identify as, as something that sounds weird or, uh, or maybe they believe some, you know, something that, that your family doesn't uh, you know, agree with or, or even it's completely opposed to uh, what your family uh, believes in. I'll tell you what happens is it just puts you and in, in, in your family in this kind of a bubble. And it's probably not healthy. I can, I can tell you it's at least not helpful. So why not get to know someone who doesn't believe the same things that you believe? And just, and just see what God might do with that kind of friendship. Listen, if all you ever do is hang around with people who think exactly the way that you do and believe the exact same things you do, I'm telling you, you're going to find that your world is extremely small. 
or maybe instead of debating some of these, you know, some of these really, uh, you know, emotionally charged, uh, you know, topics, you know, like Roe versus Wade, you, you jump in and, and take action. You know, I mean, you, you might not be aware, but I mean, we actually have, uh, you know, three pregnancy uh, decision centers all within uh, 15 minutes of our church that, that can actually support ladies that are thinking through something like that. But to do all these things, we have to be willing to stay and make those relationships and, and not just debate and try to win the argument. I'm telling you, the church was made for moments like this. But listen, we can do better. I know we can do better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please forgive us. The things that, you know, often outrage, outrage us the most... Uh, you know, if we're being honest, it just it, it has uh, very little to do with uh, loving others well. Uh, but Father, that's that's not what you've called us to do. And please help uh, break our hearts for uh, what breaks your heart. And God, we have such an incredible opportunity to uh, to show love and grace in a world that's so much marked by hate and unforgiveness. And we ask that you help us steward that well and help us to, to fear not and to be with us. And we can rest in that promise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.